Shalom, this is Shomer Man coming at you with another Parasha Midnight Torah study. And we are in Parasha Re'e. And tonight we will be looking at some insights on false prophets and on tithing. Get you some. And whatever else happens is Baruch Hashem. Without further ado, let's get started with the opening bracha. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Asher bakarbanu mikol hamim, Venatan lanu et torato. Baruch atah Adonai, Noten ha-torah. Amen. Amen. Adonai, may you bind us to the Lapid Mashiach Yeshua. May you grant us eyes to see and ears to hear. Amen. So... Today I thought I'd start off with some Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer, as we like to call it, Pearl K. Just a few drops from here. First of all, I want to talk about the creation of man. You know, uh, just looking at this, chapter 11, um, basically page 32, it says this. Immediately after creating all living beings for the benefit of man, God said to the Torah, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Bereshit 1.26 Replied the Torah, Master of the universe, the world belongs to you. The man you want to create has a short lifespan, is sated with anxiety, and will fall into him. If you are not slow to anger with him, it would be better for him not to have been created. Retorted Hakadosh Baruku, do you think that I am called slow to anger, an abundance of kindness for nothing? God gathered red, black, white, and yellow dust. The red was for Adam's blood the black for his innards, the white for his bones and sinews, and the yellow for his body. Why did he gather dust from the four corners of the earth? Hakadosh Baruku said, If a person travels from east to west and dies along the way, the earth of that place will not be able to say, The dust of your body is not from here. I will not accept you. Go back to the place from where you were created. No matter where a person dies, the dust of his body came from there. And that is the place where he returns. The dust of that place accepts him. As it says, you are dust and to dust you will return. Amen. So, just wanted to share that insight because if you think about what happened uh, in the mix of, pun intended, in the mix of man being created. First of all, you see that Hashem is talking to himself when he is consulting with the Torah about creating man. And then we see that the earth belongs to Hashem. And so the dust of the earth is, this is like basically having this 
opportunity to speak out against us, so to speak. If we were to be buried, you know, anywhere in the world, had not Hashem took dust from the four corners of the earth and used it in creating and forming man, then, you know, the earth would, in a sense, reject us unless we were able to die and be buried in the place from which we were created. So Hashem was like, no, I'm going to gather dust from the four corners of the earth. And so um, I just wanted to share that because the creation and forming of man is definitely very, very intricate among many other things as far as Hashem using the Torah to bring us forth, you know, so if we are ever in doubt as to the validity of Torah, we can just know we were created with the Torah. And uh, the Torah was already advocating for us that we were going to be sinners and that um, Hashem would need to be merciful for us. So uh, there is that as well. The next thing I want to share is that, you know, we're going through this time of entering into Teshuvah. So there is a whole chapter about Teshuvah, chapter 43 in Pearl K. We call them Pearl K sometimes because it's just like, you know, these precious, priceless pearls that we have here. And so the little drop that they have on the power of Teshuvah, it says Teshuvah and good deeds are shields against punishment. Rabbi Akiva said Teshuvah was created before the world came into being. And God's right hand is stretched out daily to welcome penitence, saying, Return, you sons of man. Tehillim 90 verse 3. So you already know that I had to get Sephiroth Rogue out and see what Tehillim 90 verse 3 has to say. And while I'm going there, I just want to really bring up the fact that Hashem gave and continue, continuously gives opportunity to anyone, whether they be from any tribe, any tongue, any nation. He says, if you're going to make Teshuva and today enter into the kingdom, then uh, that's exciting. So if that is the case for Hashem, then why would it not be the case for us? You know, like we just need to be excited about anyone who is really deciding, you know, to really come to Hashem. And the fact that, you know, a sinner, uh, anyone who is far from Hashem, the fact that they would be so inclined to even think about God, I mean... We should be rejoicing over that. And, you know, there is a passage in the Basora that Mashiach brings up about there's great rejoicing over one sinner who makes Teshuva. So let me get that real quick. All right. So it's going to be in Luke chapter 15, verse 7. So uh, as before... I'm going to go ahead and pull out the expanded version here. 
let's see. Let's go back to verse 1. Get some context here. All right. So it says the tax collectors who were despised because they worked for the Roman rulers and were notorious for corruption and extortion and sinners all came and drew near to listen to Yeshua. All right. So the fact of the tax collectors, you know, if you really think about what was going on with them, you know, it's just like they're first of all, they work for Rome. They don't work, you know, for the temple. And there's this idea that we are to bring, you know, tithes. We're to bring Ma'asir, Ma'asir's tithe. And we're supposed to give them, you know, from our heart. And that's supposed to go to the upbuilding of the community and things like that. And so really there's not this whole idea of a, of a tax, you know, within the Jewish community. And yet you have... Yehudim who are going around for Rome and doing the complete opposite. And it's just like, I'm going to take your money and then not only will it not be used for the upbuilding of the kingdom, not only will this money not be used for offerings, but we're going to use it for Rome. I'm going to get my cut out of it as well. And so it's basically, you know, sin in a, in a worst way because Something that should be used for helping others is actually um, not only it does it not help others, it's actually taking from other people. And the, the one who is taking this tax, you know, they're also trying to uh, better off, make themselves better off as well, which is just kind of not good. And so... No need to throw any names or any of modern circumstances around, but we can just stick with the principle here and just know that, you know, if we're really thinking about the money that Hashem has entrusted to us, first of all, it is supposed to be tithed because it's not our money. You know, Hashem is the one who has granted us the power to make wealth. You know, and the fact that we get a paycheck is something that we should be very, very grateful for. And so the fact that Hashem is asking for 10 percent, you know, it's just kind of like he's like, yeah, you know, I'll give you 90 and you can go ahead and take 10 and grant that to me, please. You know, and it's just kind of like, you know, if you really realize the extent and the framework in which the money that you have you know, you would just be like, man, I'm, I'm grateful to have, you know, a paycheck. So why don't I just tell Hashem, thank you with an action, you know, because really that's what you're doing when you tithe. You're telling Hashem, thank you. And you're using an action. It's not just lip service. So, you know, there's this whole idea with Parsha Re'e about how you know, we're really entering into the minutiae of the mitzvot because we're past Yirat Hashem, like fearing Hashem, loving Hashem, really drawing in and pressing in and becoming one with him. You know, now we're getting into the intricacies of the mitzvot because the mitzvot, not only are they the voice of Hashem, but they're connectors, you know. And so the fact that we would do a mitzvah that's connecting us to Hashem you know, making us one with him. And so, 
you just kind of look at all of that in which the context is and so back over here to the text collector it's just kind of like well how in the world are you gonna go ahead and rob not only from a shim but you're gonna use extra measure of taking money for yourself from places you don't even need to take from so it's like robbery uh, not only are you robbing Hashem you're robbing your fellow Yehudi so just want to kind of paint a picture because tax collectors and sinners I mean they're always lumped together and it's just kind of like man what is the deal with the tax collectors well now we know and when you really look at the fact of people like this and other people who are breaking Torah, you know, whether it be not keeping the Shabbat or whether it is not eating kosher or not even celebrating the Yom Tovs or not studying Torah, not wearing Zit if you're a guy, you know, uh, running the whole gamut here, you know, of different mitzvot, just not doing it, basically. These people, these type of people are gathering around Yeshua, you know, and they're gathering around specifically to listen, to hear, you know, and that's what we're doing with Ekev and Re'e. We're gathering around and we're listening and we're trying to hear. And I'm going to go ahead and shout out Rabbi Griffin from uh, basically a drosh that he gave on Re'e, not last year, which would have been 5777. But the year before that, which was 5776, he gave a drosh on Re'e, and he was talking about the fact that Re'e is all about seeing with the eyes of Yeshua. And so there's this idea that Re'e is written in the singular and then setting before us like Leif Nechem, that's written in the plural. And it's all about how the singular person who hearkens to the mitzvot affects the community as a whole or the single person who or the individual who does not re'e who does not hearken to Hashem who does not see with the eyes of Yeshua and they by default don't enter into mitzvot they also affect the community and so he was really like just kind of breaking that down. So if you get a chance to check that drosh out, that was absolutely legit. And he did this whole thing about uh, the Rosh Hodesh and the Rosh Hashanah, about no man knows the time or the hour, the return of Mashiach, that whole kind of tangent. So, you know, some legit stuff in there. All right. So continuing on in Luke chapter 15. We got these, basically these people who are not of good uh, circumstances, good positions, let's say. They're gathering around Yeshua. So I love this picture because if we think about the fact that we really love God and we're really trying to follow after him, you know, during those times where we really just fall short, Hashem is still like, I need you to draw near to me. I would desire that you would draw near me. So don't let that hold you back. If you're ever kind of feeling like, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe I did this. I can't believe I'm falling short. It's like Hashem is ready for you to come near to him, you know, so make Teshuvah. 
You know, that's why Yeshua says literally the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because should we make Teshuvah just like Ishpelah dropped just ridiculously on his um, share that he uh, did on the podcast, you know, about the mitzvot that hasten the coming of Mashiach, you know, making Teshuvah, that's part of it. So draw near, gather around, see with the eyes of Yeshua. Verse 2 of chapter 15, it says, And the Perushim and the Torah teachers, teachers of the law, scribes, began to complain and grumble. See, this is what it seemed like in the wilderness when the people were always like, Have you brought us out from Egypt into this wilderness to die? Were there not enough graves in Egypt? And we're thirsty and we're not we don't have anything to drink and look at all these different complaints well it's no different when mashiach is walking the earth that there are some complaints going on and it's interesting who are making these complaints because we got some perushim and we got some torah teachers and it's like these people are supposed to be the upright and uh the upstanding ones who really set the example and who model the the beauty of Torah. But yet you have people who are tax collectors and sinners who are modeling and leading in the beauty of Torah. And it's kind of like that's kind of an oxymoron. That's kind of a dichotomy at its finest, you know, and it's just like, yeah, so let's just keep going here. I just can't help myself but really just kind of look at the tax collectors and the sinners are the ones who gathered around Yeshua to really listen to him. But yet the Perishim and the Torah teachers and the scribes, they would gather around him to grumble, to try to catch him up in different things. And it's just kind of like, wait, what is happening? You know, and obviously it's not all Perishim and obviously it's not all Torah teachers. Who were this way, but a good chunk of them were, and it's just kind of like, wow, unfortunato. But anyway, it says, look, this man welcomes, associates, receives sinners, and even eats with them, indicating social acceptance. Pretty rich if you think about it, because Mashiach is giving people the opportunity to make shuva. Because we just read about Hashem is like welcoming the penitents, right? So this is why Yeshua is going to eat with them because basically in order for them to draw near to Yeshua, they're making Teshuvah. By default, one who leaves their current condition and goes to Yeshua, which would be the living Torah, the Torah made flesh, when a person comes to him, they're saying, you know, by actions, by the way, that they're choosing to forsake their own path and enter into the kingdom. So there's that. And then it says, then Yeshua told them this mashal parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep, but loses one of them. Then he will not, won't he? Leave the other 99 sheep in the open field, wilderness, desert, 
and go out and look for the lost sheep until he finds it. And when he finds it, he happily, joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. He calls together his friends and neighbors and says, be happy, rejoice with me because I found my lost sheep in the same way. So end of story, end of parable, end of Mashal. It says, in the same way, I tell you, there is more joy in Hashemayim over one sinner who changes his heart and his life and makes shuva than over 99 good, righteous, self-righteous people who don't need to change or make shuva. So that's a really big indictment if you think about it, you know, because if we're people who ever consider ourselves completely righteous and don't need to make any adjustments, then it's just kind of like, okay, there's not really any great rejoicing over that. It's just kind of like, okay, thank you for doing what you're supposed to do. But one who was far from Hashem and not doing what they were supposed to do, and they realize it, you know, when you think about people who have been involved in sin and definitely uh, experience the, the worldly pleasures of it, and yet they forsake that and go, I don't know what I was thinking. I'm so sorry, Hashem. You know, I completely destroy and demolish that in my life by returning and coming to you. Like that's where great rejoicing is because Mashiach is all about gathering in the lost sheep. That is the mission of Mashiach ben Yosef. And that is how Moshe ended up at the burning bush. I wish I could uh, get really, let me see if I can get into that. I wasn't planning to, but you know, like I said, this is the midnight tour study and uh, who knows what's going to happen. So let's look at Moshe because uh, he basically went after uh, the sheep that uh, left the proverbial group, the 99 and um Let's see here. He was basically tending his father's flock. Stand by here. All right. So, Brukashem, I think that we have finally found it. I was searching for this episode where Moshe basically uh, went after this one lost sheep. And uh, let's see here. Um, do, do, do. go back here to a rook, and it is Devarim 1 6. Okay, so it says at Mount Horev, Nachmanides writes that Horev is not a mountain but a region adjoining Mount Sinai where the Israelites were encamped during that year. In light of Shemot 33.6, where Horev is clearly described as a mountain, this is somewhat difficult to follow. Nachmanides is aware of the difficulty and suggests several alternatives, basing himself on the fact that Sinai is both referred to by the Torah on some occasions as a mountain and on other other occasions as a region. I suppose it is reasonable to say that the sheep which had lost its way and which Moshe followed 
only to be confronted by a burning bush, did not climb a mountain. So it says you can see Shemot 3.1. So let's see if we're going to get into that. All right. So that was the tour I wrote on Devarim 1.6. Seeing if I can dig up some more here on this lost sheep. And you know it'll be in Legends of the Jews. But basically there's just this whole picture of leaving the 99 and going after the one, you can just see that uh, Moshe definitely embodied that for sure. And uh, with that being the case, he uh, was brought to the burning bush and Hashem was like, this is my, this is my shepherd right here. This is my Mashiach, the one who will leave the flock to just to go after one who lost its way. And, you know, if if I ever come across this story, you let the flock in the desert, uh, I will I would definitely love to share that. And it's just such a beautiful story when you think about it. So Tur Ha'arok Devarim 1.6 breaks down the fact that Moshe went after the one lost sheep to bring him back into the fold. And that's what Mashiach is is doing he's bringing in the lost sheep so anyway so making shuva is is something that we need to do the other thing i want to bring up real quick is um back in pearl k over here there is a drop about the power of zadaka because you know we're talking about the fact of bringing our tithe and so i just want to throw this in here that bear sheet or sliga this is chapter 33 of the pearl k and it's page three and it says bear sheet 26 12 says yitzhak sowed in that area rabbi eliezer explains do not say chasve shalom hashem forbid that yitzhak planted seeds Footnote, the patriarchs were strangers in the land, living as nomadic herdsmen, like shepherds, basically. They did not own land for farming. Okay, so when it said that Yitzhak sowed in that area, you can't say that he planted seeds or don't say that he planted seeds because he did not farm, basically, as a sojourner. Then it says, rather, he tithed his income. Seeding it as Zadaka for the needy. As it says, sow for yourselves righteousness and you will reap according to kindness. Hosea 10.12 HaKadosh Baruchu returned whatever he tithed a hundredfold in wealth and blessing. As it says, God blessed him. So again, with this whole idea of tithing, You know, there is definitely blessing in that. So you're giving a portion of what really belongs to Hashem back to him. And he's graciously allowing us to use the other portion. So there's that. So I opened up the Midrash, get you some of Tehillim to Tehillim 90 verse 3. And 90 verse 3 basically says, you return the sinful man to the point of crushing 
humility and you say, return from your sinful ways, O mortals. All right. So commentary from Talmud. Okay. Straight for the jugular. Before you created the the earth and the world, you return man. The Talmud reads that these two verses, the Talmud reads these two verses as one point. So two and three are considered one point when it comes to this Talmud insight. It says before God created the world, he created the potential for teshuva along with six other foundations of creation, including Torah and the name of the Mashiach. That is Pesachim 54a. So final moments. This is a Midrash. It describes the final moments of the life of Elisha ben Avuya, a brilliant Torah sage who had rebelled against Torah observance. Okay, that that's to get you some statement right there. It's just like a Torah sage who rebelled against Torah observance. Okay, so Elisha had a righteous student named Rabbi Meir. Yep, like the Rabbi Meir that we read in commentary. It says Rabbi Meir, who continued to learn Torah from Elisha. Rabbi Meir would encourage his teacher to make shuva. But Elisha always refused, claiming he was beyond redemption. When Elisha fell ill, Rabbi Meir was informed and he went uh, to visit his teacher and encourage him to make shuva. Elisha asked, will my shuva be accepted even at this late stage? Rabbi Meir replied, is it not written? You return man until crushed, meaning that as long as one's life is not completely crushed, one can still shuva. At that moment, Rab- or at that moment, Elisha cried and breathed his last. Okay, really? That's how we're going to describe this death is one who was rebellious against Torah and made shuva at the last minute. He cried and breathed his last. And so I obviously think about the crucifixion account where there is a thief to uh, the side of Mashiach who makes Teshuvah at the last minute, you know, literally while there's still breath in his body. And he makes Teshuvah and Mashiach says, today you will be with me in Gan Eden, which is paradise. So... With him saying that, you know, Mashiach also, after he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. My father, my father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he gives up the ghost. And so we see that picture typed and shadowed right here as this Midrash is teaching us about making Shuva. So when Elisha cried and breathed his last, This led Rabbi Meir to declare contentedly, it appears that my teacher passed away amid Teshuva. So the death of Mashiach, like when he gives up the ghost, when he cries out and gives up the ghost, this is likened to the fact that one is passing away amid Teshuva. And so if we really hearken to 
what Mashiach died on the stake for. With his last and final breath echoing the fact that you really want to make Teshuvah before you die. You don't want to wait till it's too late and while there's still breath in your lungs, make Teshuvah. You know, and his death happened at the account of our sins. And so it's just kind of like, wow, you know, just to, to kind of look at all these overlays here. So that Midrash was Ruth Rabah 6-4 and Kehot Pirkeavot on 420. So that's kind of where they derived that from. All right. So that was interesting here. All right. So going from there to where are we going? Let's go ahead and jump into some sources here. Some dot zakanim. So I'm going to kind of work my way backwards. So I'm going to go ahead and pass all the false prophet and Devarim chapter 13. But I will say that the main reason that Mashiach Yeshua not being properly taught as far as the majority of those who follow him, he's not properly taught as a Mashiach because he is taught as one who did away with Torah and mitzvot. And with that being the case, if that was truly what he taught and that's truly what his followers are doing, then they're in violation of Devarim chapter 13. And if Mashiach is in violation of any part of the Torah, then that Shalom makes him a sinner and it also makes him not Mashiach. So the level that Mashiach Yeshua is brought to as he is taught with this uh, modern perspective and with his different name and the theology and the history that goes behind it, you know, that kind of creates a hang up here for, you know, why the Jews, quote unquote, don't believe in the Messiah. When you really start to look at what Jews actually believe and who the Mashiach actually is, it's a completely different story. It's not this poor Jews, they don't know Mashiach, and I wish they did. They know probably more about Mashiach than the yearning of the followers of Mashiach who uh, ha are misinformed. Uh, there are probably more Jews who know deeper insights and know Mashiach compared to those who are yearning that the Yehudim would know Mashiach. So in other words, the yearning for Jews to just know the Messiah and all this kind of stuff, it's just kind of like that's pretty much in vain. Um, and that's kind of harsh to be able to say that, but it really is because, you know, we're not supposed to know a Mashiach who leads us away from Torah. That's called a false prophet. So anyway, that's my little introduction to chapter 13 of Devarim, which happens in this week's Torah portion. But I'm going to jump over here to 1423. So in Devarim 1423, we're looking at bringing in our tithe, which is Ma'aser. And if you look at 1423, let me pull up 
a humash over here and I want to look at the Hebrew so um, hang on let's go 1422 it says you shall set aside every year a tenth part of all the yield of your sowing that is brought from the field. You shall set aside. Okay, so aser ta aser. You shall set aside. What does that mean? Because it's like tithing you will tithe is basically what that says. And um, let's see here. Look at some commentary. The passage, this is uh, Ibn Ezra. This passage in turn is connected to the passage you must set aside the tithe because scripture has informed us that one may not eat a ritually impure bird, nor a ritually impure beast, nor a beast that has died by itself, thereby concluding the discussion of meat. With respect to grain, on the other hand, there is a consecrated portion which may not be eaten except in the appropriate place. So if you just kind of basically look at where this mitzvah is juxtaposed to, it's juxtaposed to, you know, oh my goodness, you shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. Don't mix meat and dairy, really. So basically this whole prohibition of uh, meat and animals and uh, the no mixing the meat and dairy again. It's a low tevasel gidai bachalav, and uh, if you look at tevasel, that means to cook or to prepare, and then gidai is like meaty flesh, and then bachalav, and chalav is just anything dairy. So you're not to cook or prepare anything fleshly, anything meaty, with milk or have it in milk okay or dairy products so meat and dairy products are not prohibited to be used together and this is one of the many places that we see that and so coming out of the whole chapter of kashrut we go right into well we're still in the same chapter but we come right out of the kashrut and into bringing the tithe and so it's just kind of like these forbidden portions, basically. So if you think about the level that we're now being brought to, just looking at a few sources, basically, if you don't tithe, it's like you've mixed meat and dairy as well as eaten. You have eaten uh, unkosher food. And uh, yeah, that's just uncalled for. So shalom that we are not tithing and if you really look at the the picture here your tithing is a yearly drop and so this is kind of the whole idea that in our modern day you know we're tithing every week you know and so we don't get to make aliyah currently to the the mikdash and really the tithe would happen in the month of nisan and we would all make Aliyah, you know, Bezrat Hashem for like Pesach and all that. And we can bring our tithes as we're going up. And for those of us who would be fortunate, 
to live close to the Beit HaMikdash, we would be bringing up our tithe at any point during that month. And so since that's not the case, our system is a little different here. So if we're bringing in the 10th the 10% of each portion of our income, anything that we are making uh, that Hashem has granted to us by default, that when you're bringing in that uh, portion, that whether you're doing it on a weekly or a monthly or bi-monthly process, over the course of the year, you're bringing in that 10%. And so it's not like you're going to wait for one time a year and bring in your tithe. You can bring it you know, throughout the year. So that way, once the whole year is complete, you've brought the equivalent of a year's portion of the tithe. And so that's something that I want to make sure that, you know, we kind of understand because looking at the case precedent for tithing is, is very, very huge, very, very big deal, especially in the world of churches you know, and, and misappropriation of use of funds. And uh, there's all these teachings about you need to be tithing and will a man rob from God? Like that always is quoted and all this kind of stuff. And it's just like, make sure everything is used and, and taught in the right and proper mindset. And so, you know, that's why I really appreciate, you know, when we get to give Zadaka as our Shalom, because you know, one of the things that Rabbi Griffin is good about is saying, you know, kol echad, that we all is one. We're going to bring in our zadaka, which, you know, really taking ma'aser and turning it into zadaka, you get down to the spirit of the law at that point because it's not just insinuating that we're giving 10%. You know, maybe we are, maybe we aren't, you know, because who knows what everyone's giving. And it really is none of our business when you think about it, because, you know, we're not supposed to be nickel and diming, pun intended, our brothers and our sisters. You know, the fact that we're all giving, we should be giving from our heart. And so judging one another favorably that we're giving our tithes, you know, kol echad, all of us is one, we're doing this. You know, and we're giving as much as we possibly can. We're giving uh, definitely 10%, if not anything. And if we can't give 10%, we're giving, you know, and it's just like, and if we can't give anything, then we should have the desire to give. And so you think about the, again, the concept of Kol Echad, as giving is happening, we're all united in that, whether those are giving more or less or not at all. We're all one mishpaka, and so one body of many members. Yes, that does not mean we need to shirk our sp- responsibility to bring in the tithe, but we need to know there is no room for condemnation here, you know, because again, to go into there is no condemnation for those who are in Torah. If we're doing our due diligence, you know, there is no room to just kind of make people feel guilty. So anyway, um, uh, Long story short, that Rabbi Griffin always says that we are worshiping Hashem. We are worshiping Hashem. Sounds weird when I say worship. We are basically ascribing, oh, it is a form of avoda. Okay, it is a form of service that we're bringing in our tithe. And so I love that about what we get to do and even to bring it on Shabbat, you know, so Baruch Hashem. 
And there may be, um, you know, disgruntledness and complaints about can't believe these people are tithing on Shabbat and passing checks and dealing with money and all that. Well, first of all, it's not exchanging commerce because this is not money that is just kind of counted and uh, used for, you know, not spiritual purposes. And second of all, you know, there's not this whole, um, you know, money changer attitude that's going on with it. You know, we're bringing in everything. That's it. You know, so it's not like you're going to go buy some shirts or like you're trying to go out and make, you know, people work. Uh, like, in other words, you're not going to pay, you know, a waitress, you know, to serve you a meal or pay the cook to cook a meal, you know, kind of thing. When you're bringing in Zadaka, it has nothing to do with any form of commerce. So just want to kind of go ahead and preempt, you know, any kind of rebuttals that you may ever encounter because, there are specific things as Lapid Judaism that we're always going to be surrounded by. The fact that we're bringing in our Zadaka on Shabbat, people will be like, you can't write. So if you're bringing in checks, like, what is that? And then, um, you know, you shouldn't be driving on Shabbat. And that's desecrating the name of Hashem. But it's like, if you don't drive to Shul, then you will have no fellowship. And, you know, what are you going to do with that? You're just going to stay at home by yourself. You're going to put yourself under all these other things like, you know, the fact that you're not supposed to carry anything on Shabbat outside of your domain, anything as small as a pencil. So unless you're just going to stay in your house and just do a whole bunch of stuff by yourself or have people over or something like that, you're going to like basically break fellowship for the sake of not being able to drive and then not being able to drive is not a Torah commandment. The Torah commandment is all about traveling a certain distance. But when you think about where you're traveling to and where you're going, you are allowed to travel to shul, even if it's beyond the distance of a Shabbat walk, because you're not walking, first of all, when you're driving. And second of all, it's for the sake of keeping the commandment. And so it becomes this uh, this concept that, you know, for the sake of building community, for the sake of shalom bayit as a shul, you know, driving is permissible when it comes to that. And Hashem would rather us be unified and doing a voda together then he would be for us to be all dispersed and separated and doing our own thing and possibly falling into sin and falling prey to uh, leaving observance and throwing ourselves off the derrick. That's ultimately what that'll lead to. So there's that. And then uh, what are some other things that we'll encounter? Can't think off the top of my head right now, but I know driving and, uh, you know, exchanging money so to speak because uh, again us giving zadaka is not exchanging money so let's not get that in our mentalities but anyway i just wanted to bring that up hopefully that makes your life a lot easier uh with observance because it, it just gets crazy so 
anyway, um, moving on into Dot Zekanim on this. So it says that Hayotze Hasade Shana Shana, which is brought forth from the field year after year. The apparently superfluous words year after year are interpreted by Sifri as meaning that tithes must be given from the current harvest year, not two tithes from a single harvest. An alternate interpretation, the farmer is assured by the Torah that if he tithes this year's harvest properly, he will be assured of a bountiful harvest in the year following. So again, if you're going to tie to Hashem, he's going to make sure you get the hookup. And um, again, this is another thing where Hashem says, you can test me. So there is not mitzvot that we need to test Hashem in, but tithing is definitely one of them. So we can gladly have the tithe challenge of saying, Hashem, I'm going to tithe and I put you to the test that you know, um, basically I'll be blessed from giving in the tithe and I will have abundance because I have tithe. So Hashem, I'm giving you this. Um, I'm going to put you to the test that you said you would provide for me if I, if I tithe. So, you know, that's something that's permissible for us to do. It's kind of feels awkward saying that, but you know, it's the truth. It says, test me in this kind of thing. Um, here, I'll go ahead and give you the address on that. It is uh, Malchi 310. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says Adonai Zavot, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of Hashemayim and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. So, you know, there's that. And it's just kind of like, yeah, may, may I be blessed with having floodgates of Hashemayim poured out over me. And that I'll have to tell Hashem, die, die, anu, die, die, anu, die, die, anu, die, anu, die, anu. It would have been enough for us kind of thing. Like, okay, Hashem, stop. That's enough. Uh, it would have been enough if you would have just gave me, you know, a little bit, you know, so Hashem. Anyway, tithing, you know, legit. That's in this week's tour portion. Uh, getting some good case precedent on that. And then, you know, really, you can see tithing here is really brought in from a standpoint of produce of our field. You know, so, yes, we're not farmers, maybe, if we live in the city and we work at corporate jobs or, you know, industrial jobs and things like that. But the place where we're spending our time and where we're working by the sweat of our brow that is our field. And if you think about the fact that what you're receiving as wages, you know, that's like fruit. You know, that is produce of the work that you've been putting in. And so your produce is what you're supposed to be bringing in to Hashem, to the storehouse. So uh, I want to read Dot Zekanim on 1423. It says the tithe uh, from... Okay, so ma'aser deganeka tiroshka veitzareka. Okay, recognize that phrase. That's from the the Shema, and it talks about how your grain, your wine, and your oil. So these are like little three categories here. 
And it says, so the tithe from your corn harvest, your grain harvest, and the harvest of your olive trees. Okay, so Deganeka Tiroshka Veitsareka. All right. So the personal pronoun your at the end of these three words are to indicate that if you tithe each harvest properly, then you will be entitled to call the remainder as truly yours. If you tithe each of these of your harvest properly, then you will be entitled to call the remainder yours. If not, Hashem will consider these harvests as belonging to him. And as we know from the verse in Hosea 2.11, Assuredly, I will take back my new. As in, I will take back the grain in its time and my new wine at its season. You can also see Tankuma 18 on this, on our portion. It says, if you wish to appreciate the power of tithing your produce meticulously, Consider the following. Concerning all other mitzvot, the Torah wrote that you must not put Hashem to the test. Here we go. To see if he keeps what he has promised. Devarim 6.16 talks about you shall not put Hashem to the test. And it says there is only one exception to this rule. Oh, there's only one exception. Only time you can test Hashem. It says spelled out by the last of our prophets, Malachi 3.10. But the full tithe, or bring the full tithe into the storehouse, and let there be food in my house, and thus put me to the test, says Adonai Zebaot. I will surely open the floodgates of the sky for you, and pour down blessings on you, and I will banish the locusts from you, so that they will not destroy the yield of your soil, and the vines in the fields shall no longer miscarry, says Adonai Zebaot. And all the nations shall account you as happy, for you shall be the most desired of lands, says Adonai Zavot. Our sages in Talmud Tractate, Ta'anit, Folio 9, ask in about the meaning of the words of verse 10 of the quote from Malachi, or Malchi, and it says, they said that it means until your lips will get tired of saying enough. So ad beli die is the phrase. And interestingly enough, the first letters of that phrase is ein vet dalid, which is avid, which means servant. The last letters of that phrase is dalit yod yod, which you can rearrange to yod dalit yod, and it is yede. The hands, okay, or hands of, basically. And so if you think about the hands of the servant, basically, if you put that together, that is our tithe. So what are our hands giving to Hashem? And it has been almost an hour and my alarm is about to go off. So, you know, we're obviously going to disregard that because now I'm about to switch over to the Midrash Get You Some. And talk about some false prophecy here. I'm going to just give this a moment because I know it's going to go off. And all right, I beat it. Okay, cool. So in the Midrash, get you some. I want to start off with this. The Torah considers someone who incites another Jew to sin more harmful than a murderer. 
The murderer harms the victim's body. The, the instigator his immortal soul. A, ma, a mycese is in actuality a dangerous criminal who has unwittingly been allowed to move around freely in society. Okay, while we readily grasp the horror of a homicide, we must train our minds to understand that uprooting a Jew from Torah, cutting him off from his spiritual life source, is more heinous crime, is the more heinous crime, into the category of ma Masisim, uh, it says, into the category of Masisim fall movements such as the conservative and reform, which sever our brethren from Torah and mislead them into assimilation and intermarriage. That is a throat kick. Good night. Okay, so one of the things about this is the tragic reality of the Jewish community today. You know, um, there are modern rabbis who are all about talking about the terrible state that we're in, where there's so much assimilation going on, there's so much intermarrying going on that, you know, Judaism is about wiped out as far as people who have uh, consistent generational uh, bloodlines. You know, there's the this generation, the parents and the grandparents and so on and so forth, like that kind of thing, that that's quickly being non-existent. And what's quickly picking up is converts. And so converts are basically replacing uh, Jews who have been uh, generation after generation, like literally observant Orthodox Jews, like that's going away. And now we have generation one Jews because we got proselytes. And so it's just kind of like, wow, this is happening because there's a lot of uprooting of the Jewish soul from Torah, which is very, very terrible. And so Besrat Hashem, Mashiach will return soon before it gets too bad. And there's not, there's barely any Amuna left you know so uh anyway want to start there and um this word my my cease okay i want to go back to when that first appears over here and my cease it says to expose a jew who incites others to idol worship and not treat him mercifully all right so i'm on page 175 in the midrash get you some so parshare a says Moshe warned if any Jew even a close relative such as your father or your wife should ever propose to you let us disregard our forefathers traditions and serve one of the gods of the goyim reject outright his inducements so even if it's your mother or your brother that's calling you away from Torah, you know, it's just kind of like you just outright reject it, you know. And this obviously, since I said mother or brother, this makes me think about Mashiach, you know, saying, who are my mother? Who are my brothers? So let's go ahead and take a look at that. I love just being all about the words of our 
Mashiach. And again, as I was saying, um, if you overlay the teachings of Mashiach Yeshua with the oral Torah and the written Torah, you have the essence of the sapphire tablets. So just throwing that out there that that's why we want to run around and throw stuff all the time because I'm just like, I can't believe what I'm hearing right now. I mean, I can believe it, but I don't know what else to say. So I'm just going to throw something. And when people drop all these insights that connect and, and line up all these dots, they, I, I just feel like instead of saying, hey, that was really beautiful and amazing. I really appreciate that. That was so impactful to me. You just you just have to, like, find something else to say, like, you need to get some help or like what is wrong with you or why don't you just push in your chair and leave you know you're excused from this table of Torah study kind of thing so uh anyway that's how we lovingly uh talk to each other at lapide you know it's just kind of like that was amazing you just need to get some help and you know stop it just say no kind of thing but you know it's beautiful so we are going to i bet we're going to luke again and uh I'm looking for the Luke verse. I would love to find the Luke verse, but that's okay. We will go to Mark. Okay, we're going to spend some time in Mark chapter 3. Look it up, Mark 3. It's funny because, you know, all the Iron Man suits are called Mark. And so there's like a Mark 4, a Mark 43, and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, so Mark 3, let's pick up around. Yeah, let's pick up at 31. Actually, no, let's go to Mark 3.22 because this will set the scene. You got to set the scene. You always got to set the scene. What's going on here? Okay. So Torah teachers, again, here we go with the Torah teachers. Yeshua called the people together and taught them with uh, parables. Uh, doom, doom, doom. 22, okay. Sleek, I was supposed to. Okay, but the teachers of the law, the Torah teachers from Yerushalayim, were saying, Beelzebub, which is another name for Asatan, is living inside and possessing him. Okay, so they're just basically saying Mashiach is not empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. He's not filled with the Ruach HaKodesh. He's actually filled with the Yetzahara, the Malach HaMavit, and so on and so forth. He uses power from the ruler and the prince of demons to force and drive and cast out demons of people. So the first thing about that is that's very, very interesting that they would say he's he's powered by demons to cast out demons like that's interesting. But anyway, he keeps going, he says, but he called and spoke to them in parables how can Hasatan expel Hasatan? If a kingdom if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't survive. So stop and Emet would like to interject that this is why we have no temple, because our kingdom has been divided. We have turned on ourselves as Yehudim and we've fought in one another. It's continuing to happen today, which is delaying the return of Mashiach because we're still operating in baseless hatred when we should be operating in baseless love. If we are Orthodox Jews, if we are Torah true Jews, because by the way, that's what Orthodox mean. Don't let Orthodox like trip you up and make you think, oh my gosh, Orthodox, ooh, that's scary. Oh my gosh, like these people are hardcore. 
No, no, no. Orthodox just means we stick to basic, pure Torah. And I know there's nothing really basic about Torah because it's just like it's really not precepts of this world and it's all about being empowered with the spirit of God and all that. So there's nothing basic about it, but it's pure Torah. You know, we're not going all crazy with stuff. You know, we're keeping it, keeping it simple, you know, loving God and loving others. You know, the Torah hangs on those two things. And which I would like to just repoint out again, you know, as Rabbi Griffin elucidated, you know, the, about the new mitzvah that I give to you that Mashiach Yeshua talks about. If you really think about the whole Torah hangs on these two things, that if you are not loving Hashem with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and if you're not loving your neighbors, you love yourself, then there is no Torah for you to really be observant of. You know, all the all the other mitzvot follow after you're doing those things, because how can you truly love Hashem if you hate your brother? And how can you truly observe the Shabbat if you're not loving God or your brother, you know, or any other mitzvah for that fact? You know, you can't really truly do a mitzvah if you have if you don't have love for God and love for your neighbor. So, yeah, anyway. And again, if you don't have love for God or love for your neighbor, you're dividing up the kingdom and it does not stand. So, yeah. So we're in exile to figure that out. And Bezrat Hashem, we figure it out soon so we can get out of exile because I don't want to be here. Hopefully you don't want to be here. So Hashem, fill us with baseless love. Bring us into Eretz Yisrael, into the rebuilt city of Yerushalayim with the return of Mashiach Yeshua speedily and soon in our days. Amen. Okay, anyway, so Mark 3, 27 says, furthermore, or we could just say moreover, but furthermore, no one can break into a strong man's house and make off with his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. After that, he can ransack his house. Yes, I tell you that people will be forgiven all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. However, someone who blasphemes against the Ruach HaKodesh never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. So if you say that the Ruach HaKodesh is the Yetzahara or the Malach HaMavid or just something purely wicked and evil, that's not good. Okay, that guilt is of eternal sin. Because in order for you to be able to say that, you by default prove that you are sons of perdition. You're sons of the lawless one. And if you're sons of the lawless one, that's really like creating this core for you. And you completely remove yourself away from the penitent and the one who makes teshuva, you know, that we began this Josh talking about. So, anyway... Verse 30 says, for they, for they had been saying he has an unclean spirit in him. And now you're just like calling the Torah unclean, you know. So there is some crazy accusations being leveled against Mashiach right now as he is doing Torah and mitzvot. And, you know, if it happened to Mashiach, it can also happen to us. And so... For those of us who are observant and we walk around and, uh, you know, are just really seeking to cleave and attach to Hashem and we're wearing a kippah or, 
we're wearing zit zit, or lady, you're wearing a tekel, and you're you're being zanut, and you're getting looked at, so to speak, by other people who claim to be followers of Hashem, who claim to be students of the Bible, and they're looking at you like you're the biggest sinner in the world, like you have an unclean spirit, like you literally belong to the devil. And then you're just like, wait, I don't get what's happening because, you know, I don't see you dressed as a newt or I don't see you really being loving and kind. And, you know, and of course, we don't say these things and they shouldn't even be in our hearts because, again, we want to uh, desire that all men know Hashem and that everyone is walking into Shuva. So if we have these thoughts in our hearts, um, you know, we have to. We do have to make shuba for that, you know. So even though these are justifiable things that we could say, it's just one of those things where it's just like, wow, got to let that go. And Hashem, help this person. Draw them near to you. I forgive. Fill me afresh with your spirit. Mikvah me in your yod heh vav he, your name, your divine name. It's just a mikvah. Mikvah me now, Father. Amen, amen. You know. And so... All that's going on, right? And it's just kind of like, yes, so this is us entering into the fellowship of suffering with the Messiah when that's happening to us. So may we continue to dress the newt and to uh, walk modestly, even in the midst of scorning and persecution. I mean, persecution doesn't have to, by the way, be this horrible thing of like, you're getting physically abused or whatever. It can be any kind of just rude remarks that you're undergoing, you know, because of your mitzvah keeping. So, you know, just for what it's worth, blessed are those who are persecuted. All right, so here we go. The key verses, Mark 3, 31. Then, so after all this is going on, it says, then his mother and brothers arrived standing outside. They sent a message asking for him. So he's teaching right now in the midst of being scorned right now. And his mother and his brothers come up and they're standing outside. First of all, I don't really know what's going on, but you probably want to go inside, I would think. I mean, I don't know if if I saw Mashiach Yeshua teaching anywhere. I'm just saying I'll drop what I'm doing and, and go get me some. So but anyway. It says a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. He replied, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those seated in a circle around him, he said, see, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does what God wants, whoever does the commandments is my sister, my mother, my brother. So whoever does what God wants is my brother, my sister, and my mother. Expanded says that those who do the will of God, and remember the will of God is Torah. So, you know, the fact that we would do the will of God and that would bring us into relation with Mashiach, that's pretty legit. So so back to the Midrash over here. That uh, you're not to listen to your father or your wife or any of your close relatives that tell you to forsake Torah. Then it says, do not even inquire into his type of worship, even if 
it is completely new to you, for all idolatry is worthless. Rabbi Wolby on this week's um, podcast for Parsha A brings down the fact that all of the mitzvot that we are granted through Torah is really to repudiate idolatry. So any of the 613, any of those mitzvot that you do, they are you placing action to your lip service of you forsake idols and you worship Hashem. So all the mitzvot give you this opportunity to refrain from idol worship, not only to refrain, but to repudiate it like Ugh, idols like oh I ain't doing that like forget you by Felicia type thing so we got 613 by Felicia's to idol worship that's what the Torah is so yeah anyway rather try to find witnesses against the evildoer so that he can be punished by Beit Dean so here's the thing you don't really want to just go toe-to-toe and battle with someone who is trying to entice you into idol worship. You need, just need to get this to be a community thing. Take some witnesses with you. Take a few, you know, like one, two or three. And, uh, you know, two or three got it in my name. Okay, there I am. So you want to give them an opportunity to make shuba. If they don't do that, then you want to also bring them to the bait D. Now, I'm just going to put it out there. If anybody in their right mind is willing to stand up and challenge the Bay Dean, and this is just completely stabbing me in my heart because I did this um, probably three or four years ago now. Uh, hopefully it's longer, but feels like just yesterday because it's very, very, um, my, there's just, I learned so much from that. But anyway. Uh, going toe to toe with the bait dean, you know, you don't you don't want to do that. Just make shuva and, and and get it done, you know. So anyway, if you have this person who's enticing you to do that, bring them to the bait dean, you know, so that they can be corrected. You know, this word punished is written here, but as we've learned in previous parashot, that when there is punishment brought forth from Torah, that it is not this. Um, punishment that is fruitless you know the punishment is actually a correction you know and it's actually to bring you to a higher place to restoration and get you back onto the path of righteousness basically so anyway says the torah enacts very strict laws against my cease and then it says a jewish instigator or missionary Oh my goodness. So this is why so Masis. My Mysis is probably the more technical way to say it. So the Mysis, you know, this is why probably anti-missionaries exist, you know, and it's just like because of the great drastic spectrum that the missionaries and the instigators come in. Uh, you know, anti-missionaries have kind of tipped the scales too far in the other direction. But, you know, that's neither here or there. Just something to be aware of. It's just kind of like, okay, so the Torah enacts very strict laws against these people who are instigators and missionaries who attempt to persuade our people, Yehudim, to accept strange gods. 
Okay, and I'm just going to point out that how do you know what a strange God is if it's not in the Torah and you're supposed to worship it? It's a strange God. Just keep it simple. No need to point fingers and call people out. We can just know that, believe that and trust that, you know, festivals that Hashem has called us to celebrate. Let's celebrate those observances that Hashem has called us to do. Let's do that. Anything else that contradicts and conflicts with that, run away. Okay. Anyway, I always think about uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. They're like, run away, run away. You know, yeah, do that. Okay. Then it says, he is not included in the law of loving a fellow Jew. This instigator of this missionary, they're not even considered someone that we're supposed to, by command, love as a fellow jew kind of intense okay? like they've gone from this level of being someone you're to love despite of your differences and despite your um i don't know your opinions of one another this person you're like nope you're not even supposed to love them so then it says rather it's a mitzvah to hate him in accordance with Tehillim 139.21, about to get the green book out, I think. It says, in accordance with Hashem, do I not hate those who hate you? All right, let's look that up real quick because that sounds like that'll be some interesting thing. Because I've never heard that it's a mitzvah to hate, you know, to hate something. It's just like, yeah, it's a mitzvah. Let's do it. Let's bring out the hatred. Just like, whoa. But, you know, I'll bring to the table Amalek, Haman, Gog and Magog, you know, just to name a few. These people were worthy of hatred because they tried to they try and they tried to kill our soul. So anyway, um there's no difference here with the Mycese. Alright, 139.21. What you got? Absolutely nothing. I can't believe it. But here it says a time to hate. So uh, 21 and 22 have been lumped together. All right, Rukashim. Sefer Yaarok, the big green book, Tehillim Midrash. It says, Indeed, those who hate you, O God, I hate. With those who rise up against you, I quarrel. With the utmost hatred do I hate them. I regard them as if they were my own enemies. So make Hashem's enemies your enemies. And it uses Sina is the word. And if that sounds highly familiar as far as phonetically related to Sinai, that is correct. Sinai is also called hatred. And the hatred that Sinai evokes is that the Yehudim, when they got to Sinai, they hated basically lawlessness and um, what is it? Dissension. And they hated idolatry and things like that, which is why they encamped as one man, which is why Hashem was able to give the Torah to the Yehudim, because they were literally kol echad. So anyway, that's something, that's a thing about hatred. So this commentary here says, I hate those 
who with their wicked words cause your mitzvot to be hated by others. Who wrote this? Other than David? Is this, this is the Psalm of David? Tehilale David? 139, where we at? Because if, if that is the case, oh my word, it's just unleashed over here. Mismore, okay, yeah. Lamnezeak le David, Mismore Adonai. Wow. Okay, it's getting getting serious. So, you know, really, when you think about anything that you do as a follower of Hashem, a believer in Mashiach, a follower of Mashiach, as a Lapid, if David wasn't okay with it, we probably shouldn't be okay with it. If David was okay with it, then we should probably be okay with it. Because even our Mashiach is called Mashiach ben David, which means he's patterned and typed after David. Because a ben is like their father, you know. So there's that. Uh, shameless plug here for my father, you know, um, my birth father. Um, I was hanging out with him on one occasion and everyone in the room were like looking at us and staring at us like we were like a science project on display. And they were like, man, y'all look so much alike from like head to toe. Like, this is weird. You know, like you're just a spitting image. Like he just, you know, you just came right out from him. Like he just, you just look exactly like him. Talking about me looking like my dad and so it's just kind of like if that's the case you know on this plane of existence then how much more so when you get into the higher spiritual worlds and things like that when you talk about a bin you know this is why if you've seen the son you've seen the father you know when mashiach is questioned you know how have you shown us the father and he's like if you've seen me you've seen the father you know it's just like oh goodness wow that's intense because I know what it's like to look like your father and you're just like but Yeshua though it's like oh my gosh okay but anyway swerving too much all right so David is laying down some stuff here um, and then it says that I quarrel with those who rise up to deny divine providence I hate them with the hatred of which there is none greater Though they have done nothing to harm me, I consider them my enemies. Wow, that's from the Medzudo. Says a time to hate from Hasidut, a Hasidut thought. For the most part, heresy in our time is caused by ignorance. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, you know what? Just gonna stop right there. <laughs> no more needs to be said. Uh, the Big Green Book just did a mic drop on me, so... I'm going to leave it on the ground because, wow. Okay, I'm going to pretend like nothing happened. Back to Midrash, get you some. It says, he may also not be judged favorably. This instigator and this missionary here who is against the mitzvot, someone who is enticing us and inciting us to idol worship, he may also not be judged favorably, not treated mercifully, and in his case, Beit Dean is exempt from its usual obligation to find exonerating factors for someone condemned to death. Because, you know, that that's amazing to me that the Beit Dean are supposed to find ways to exonerate the person who's been accused. 
like look for a way to not hurt or harm or judge this person so yes i'm thinking about mashiach's unfair trials before the bait dean you know he was brought before his own people and one of the most wicked and vilest kings possibly that ever existed herod had more mercy on him or Pilate had more mercy on him than his own you know so it's just kind of like wow Mashiach was treated as if he was a person who incited idol worship and there was no desire to find anything to exonerate him so there's that uh, keeping going here it says the potential harm inflicted by one who incites idol worship who removes Yehudim from God's service is in inestimable Ram bomb with a mem comments by not favoring a Rasha and not covering up for him we bring Shalom upon the Jewish people if the idol worship insider if the if the person who incites idol worship was convicted by the testimony of witnesses Beit Dean executes him with stoning it is a mitzvah for the victim whom the one who incited idol worship attempted to convert it is a mitzvah for the victim so if someone incites you to idol worship and the Beit Dean you know accuses and makes the judgment then it's a mitzvah for the victim who was attempted to be converted to cast the first stone at him. So if we think about when Mashiach uh, was presented with the woman caught in adultery, and it was like, what do you say to this woman? Like, should we stone her? And it's like, well, you know, there's this thing called the Sota, but it was discontinued because this generation is so sexually immoral that doing the Sota act would not even be a thing because Hashem would be blotting out his name for no apparent reason at all because it's just like you're so immoral you're so not faithful to your own that i'm not gonna sit around for this and so mashiach extending that same spirit out i'm not gonna sit around for this so let me just write in the dirt and say he who is out he who is without sin let him cast the first stone and it's just kind of like is this your mitzvah is this really your mitzvah people who are all about immorality and you want to put this innocent woman as far as standards of immorality go um, compared to what possibly was going on the fact that you got a group of guys who are setting a trap for this woman whether she was minding her own business or not doing things that are inappropriate but the fact that they caught her in the act you don't just catch somebody in the act like that, especially a group of guys. I mean, come on now. That's very, very uh, corrupt and twisted and all sorts of perverted. So anyway, when he says, well, yeah, if you're without sin, go ahead and cast a stone, you know, because uh, you didn't really do this the proper way. Anyway, you came in and interrupted my teaching in the Beit HaMikdash, in the courtyard of all places. And you're going to throw this woman all out here like that. Yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't think everybody understands the weight of what's going on here. So, uh, 
you know, y'all take a minute, talk amongst yourselves and figure this out. And uh, I'll be back with you shortly. And so he writes and turns around and stones are on the ground and the woman is standing there by herself. And he's like, oh, where are your accusers? She's like, they've all left. And he goes, well, I don't accuse you either. Go and sin no more. Now, this, that's a perfect picture of Teshuba, by the way, to just be caught in such a horrible thing. And it's just like, I can't believe I'm so shamed. I'm so embarrassed. I'm so insulted right now. I'm sad. I'm angry. I'm depressed. I'm just at the end of my wits. And Mashiach is like, I'm not going to bring any judgment on you. There's there's not this you're really trying to uh, overthrow the kingdom. You're trying to lead the nation into idol worship. You know, the heart of mercy just overflows on this lady. And he tells her, you know, go, sin no more. Don't do this again. You know, let's not have to have this encounter. And that's what it's like with all of our sins. It's like, let's not have this encounter. But anyway, uh, throwing the first stone. So uh, the next statement here, it says that the Beit Dean is required to send a written message throughout Eretz Israel. So-and-so was put to death as one who incites to idol worship so that Jewry, so that all Jews basically, should take a lesson from his death. Again, pointing back to Mashiach taking a lesson from his death. Even though he didn't incite us to idol worship, but he allowed himself to be treated as if he was like he who knew no sin became sin. And so even though he was a righteous one who died in our place, you know, let's learn from that. And this is why we would look at the sacrifices in the Beit HaMikdash and why we would do all of our prayers at the Beit HaMikdash while the sacrifices were going on is because we would be taking a lesson from the avoda that is happening. We're killing ourselves in Torah study, and we're killing our animal souls by offering up these animals who did nothing to deserve what they're getting. And it's just like, man, that should bring some true change. You know, and it says, The laws of Mycenae, the one who incites to idol worship, teach us to avoid contact with people. Who are prone to remove us from Hashem's service. So let us uh, remain aloof from those who lead us aloof. Who try to take us away from Torah. Who try to take us away from Hashem. And until Mashiach Yeshua on a mainstream level is taught otherwise. That uh, basically until we teach about Mashiach as Lapid is teaching. That he actually leads us in the Torah. He leads us in a deeper Torah. He leads us in the pure Torah. And until that's the message taught by his followers on a mainstream level, you know, the question about why Jews don't believe in Yeshua, you know, it's it. That's what it is. Now, obviously, Bezrat Hashem, Mashiach will return and he's going to reveal himself to them because that's the pattern that, you know, go back to Yosef with his brothers that Yosef took his brothers in the room and kicked out all of the people who uh, were servants. And it was just Yosef and his brothers, and he said, I need Yosef. And so Yeshua is going to say the same thing because he's been Yosef. And so 
there's that. And then for the simple fact that in order for belief in Mashiach Yeshua to happen, flesh and blood won't be able to reveal that to us. You know, quite frankly, you you are not going to be convinced by the words of flesh and blood that Yeshua HaMashiach is the Mashiach. The only way that you will know that is by the spirit of Hashem, by the Torah, which is why it's super important that if you say you believe in Yeshua HaMashiach, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Melech Israel, Ben Yosef, Ben David, then when you enter into Torah from study to observance, he is revealed to you. And that way you should be able to see him that he is truly the Messiah. Other than that, you know, you really don't have a, a, a good picture of fully knowing him in a, in a way, in an opportunity that Hashem has graciously granted us, you know, through Torah and mitzvot and observance and oral Torah, halakha and all that. So what do we know? What do we know? Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Asher natan lanu Torah emet, Vekaye olam natabetokeinu, Baruch atah Adonai, Noten haTorah, Amen. May we merit to see the return of Mashiach Yeshua speedily and soon in our days. Amen. Shalom.